Hey y'all, welcome back to another episode of Chats from the Blog Cabin, the show where I invite people into the blog cabin to chat about life. I'm Melissa, your host. Today I'm chatting with Dr. Lynette Louise. She's also called the Brain Broad. And we chat about her being a adoptive mom of, I think she has like eight kids. I think two are biological. You'll see in the story. She has some biological and some that she adopted. All Most of the kids that she adopted are special needs kids. So you'll hear how she got into becoming a neurofeedback expert by interacting with her kids and the crazy adventures they go on. So I really hope you enjoy this podcast um, as much as I enjoy chatting with Dr. Lynette. So you know what I need you to do right now? That's right. Start listening. Welcome back to another edition of Chats from the Blog Cabin. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Lynette Louise. She is an international brain change and behavior expert specializing in autism. So, Dr. Dr. Lynette, Dr. Louise, what, how would you like me to call you today? You can call me the brain broad. That's what most people call me. It's All easier right, to brain, remember. All right, brain broad. Um, or just yourself. Lynette. Just call me Lynette. Lynette, okay. Um, Lynette. Introduce yourself more in depth before we start talking okay. about what you do. Okay. Well, first I want to thank you very much for having me on and tell you that that is like the best opening I've ever seen to a show that was so entertaining and fun. Wonderful job. Good job. Um, so I feel like I'm in a spy novel now because of the music and I'll, I'm going to have to do this in a clandestine way. Um but that kind of matches because I work with autism internationally and I have to be able to sort of fit into every culture that I go to. To talk about what I do is to start from that point and we can work backwards. But uh, the, until the pandemic, <laughs> I used to travel all over the world into people's homes or group homes or schools and work hands-on with people and their children. And I, as a you mentioned I specialize in autism, but I work with other brain disorders as well. And when I work with autism, I have to not only fit into the culture I'm in, like let's say I'm in Lebanon or I'm in Africa or I'm in Israel, um, I have to fit into the culture, the religion, the style of eating and behaving, but also into the style of being autistic. Because an autistic person has a different approach and a different way of thinking. What's interesting is, because I travel all over the world to do that, and I have to fit into all these different cultures, the one thing that has stayed the same <laughs> is the autistic people. So uh, it's the opposite to other people's experience, but it's from you know this sort of approach of being hands-on and going everywhere. And I, I often have this feeling of, phew, I can play with the autistic person now, and, and I'll know what to do. And I'm not you know sort of cutting my teeth on a new culture. Um, 
So that's what I do. I work with neurofeedback predominantly and I call it play because it has a playful style and I originally learned play therapy. But the truth is it's morphed into something I'm, I'm still struggling with naming and it's more of a, it's like being a biofeedback person with another human being and responding to their behavior immediately with information that will help them to change themselves. That sounds really difficult. But a good example is something as simple as someone who has difficulty speaking saying, bah, 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 bah. and I go, bah, bah, oh, ball. So, and then immediately go mm -hmm. get the ball. Don't stand there and say, do you mean ball? Are you saying ball? And take the association out of it. So the brain associates action, sound, all the sensory stuff. It's associating what makes the world move and groove. Mm -hmm. So if you just stand there and ask a lot of questions about the sound that was uttered in this example, what you're actually teaching is when you make that sound, I stand there and I make a lot of sounds back at you and we both make sounds and it gets a little frustrating. Mm. And then I give up and walk away. Yeah. Okay. So I do play. I am playful. Um, but I attach this sort of constant immediate response system. And I got that because of neurofeedback. I figured that out from doing this neurofeedback for the brain, which is biofeedback for the brain. And it's magical. And what's so great about it is that it responds to the changes in the neuronal behavior immediately. Mm. And then you see change. You see a headache disappear. You see um, anxiety go away. You see, like, it's just amazing to watch someone unfold that way in front of you. And then I generalized it into how I am with people. That is kind of what I've done for the last 20 years. Um, presently, I'm doing more teaching and speaking and workshops, partly driven by pandemic because we mm. can do it online. But largely driven by age, you know, I'm, I'm near retirement age, so it's important that I do something to spread the legacy and not leave myself uh, taking on a patient that really I should be there for for 10 years and that'll have me into my mid-70s. That's not mm. a good idea, right? So, right. Um, yeah, so I'm shifting in order to maintain, um, you know, Eth be ethical, really. Um, mm -hmm. I don't want to take on new patients if I can't give them the kind of time that they're going to need. Now, you talked about going in different cultures, and you said the autism person stays the same, but how do different cultures treat autism? Because I'm sure well, you've seen a vast majority of places. Right, right. Well, di obviously, differently. Um, when I say they say the same, obviously, even autistic people are mm -hmm. different amongst themselves. But I've come to know people with autism so well that I know, oh, it's like this and shift into this gear and that gear. I don't know cultures as well. Mm -hmm. um, initially, I actually would go without knowing on purpose. And uh, I always do that with the child. I try not to know too much of their individual stims and that sort of thing mm -hmm. so that I have fresh eyes. And when I went into a culture, I would go with fresh eyes there thinking that's also a good idea. But some of what you're 
referring to some of the way their child was treated mm-hmm. was surprising enough to me. And I didn't have what I needed <clears throat> in my knowledge base, excuse me, <clears throat> to respond. I'll give you an example. So I was working with a young man who saw shapes as uh his world. So he had, he had, uh, the door was a number and it had a name and like he, he, it was like sort of a autism slash schizophrenic, really mm-hmm. grandiose environment that he lived in, in his head. And he would draw these amazing pictures and stuff, but we were in Kuwait and in Kuwait, this was with this family, at least, I don't know that that's all Kuwaitis, but Um, with this family, this was completely unacceptable. And so what I normally do is I take how the child is and how they see the world. I find a way to enjoy that with them, to build on that, and then add in our more normative style, our more normative Mm -hmm. information. So that's great, but we call it a door. Mm-hmm. And if you call it, right, um, and then make that a game or make that fun or put that in the story, depending on, on what they do. And this family just wasn't okay with that. Mm-hmm. Like, there's just no way that that's cool because other people come out, you know, are going to look at him and he's the broken one. And we have to do it this way. We have to do forceful things. And it was very challenging for me to realize there are this was kind of an awakening visit because there are people I won't want to help because I will make it worse if they're not ready to hear me or learn from me, I'm just going to make it worse. Right. Then they're going to be more assertive in their style with the child after I leave. So then I became a little bit more careful about knowing the family before I went, not the child, but the family. So yeah, many cultures, they, they can't, um, they can't look at this difference as a possible different ability. And many cultures can, and then it's not just cultures, it's people, right? Even in our culture, you know, you have families that can, can do that. They can embrace that. They can say, Hey, he's my adorable person. She's my adorable person. And how do we hang out Mm -hmm. together? Um, And you have families that absolutely cannot do it that way that have to be very rigid and strict. So it's not just culture. It's, it's location, culture, family history, genes. It's much more than that. So you you actually mentioned something about um, just as you were talking about being the broken one. A lot of people look at autism or an autistic child as being the broken one. So let's talk about that discrimination or that prejudice. Yeah, you know, that's an interesting thing because it's it creates a thing called sick person personality. Of course, there's a medical name, but this is easier to explain. Mm-hmm. Um, so it happens when it, whatever the illness, like if you have someone who has cancer, if you have someone who has Parkinson's, if you have someone who has uh, fibromyalgia, if you have someone, it can be an extreme illness, a small illness, a cognitive disability. It can be, you know, no legs. Um, when you have the person in the family that everyone sees as broken it creates a kind of personality in the family or in the the unit, whether it's a classroom or what, whatever it is. And that is reinforcing of the problem. 
right? Mm -hmm. So let's, I'm going to break that down into something small. So again, you can understand what I mean. Let's say you have someone who has autism and you've heard that autistic people need a ritualistic uh, scheduled mm -hmm. sameness, which by the way, I disagree with. But let's, that's what you've heard. You have an autistic child. You've, you're going to do what you've been told. So now, whenever someone is about to create a varied situation, like the schedule changes, the pandemic comes, the news tells you you're having a hard time, a, a neighbor comes over when you didn't expect them to, you get anxious. And you go, oh, you're going to have a hard time with this. And the sick person, in this case, our autistic person who we've decided has a problem with this, goes, oh, you're right, I am. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because they felt you and they felt it. Now, they mm -hmm. may have had that problem, yes, but we reinforced it. Mm -hmm. We made it bigger. And so the entire unit, the entire family creates what's called sick person personality. One of the best things I do when I go into home is break that up. You know, it, it, it's not that the child doesn't have challenges. They do. They have a label because they have challenges. But when we reinforce the challenges or create them because of a belief we hold, because of something we learned, then we just increase their challenges, even if we're seeing them gain some skills here and there. Mm -hmm. We may be increasing their anxiety in this example. So you just said that you disagree with the ritualistic sameness that autistic children have to have. So tell me why you disagree with that. Well, you'd kind of have to, to know why you'd have to go to my backstory, which is that I adopted a bunch of multiply handicapped children and uh, four of them were on the spectrum of autism, had fetal alcohol syndrome, mm -hmm. um, educatably retarded, uh, different labels especially back then, retarded was the main, you know, educatably, uneducatably. So I had all, all of the above. Yeah. Uneducatable, educatable, we don't know what you are, a bull, right? <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> but the, the one thing I didn't do, I am not a routine person. And it wasn't so set in stone that children needed that at the time, but it was a thing that they said. And I thought, heck no, I cannot live a life where I have to be so routine, I will go insane. Mm -hmm. I'm a super spontaneous, fly by the seat of my pants kind of girl. And I love that about myself. So I wasn't willing to let that go. So I actually changed everything in my children's lives all the time. Like they'd go to sleep and I'd change the furniture. Mm -hmm. um, I made sure things were always varied. And I stayed super spontaneous and up the, the ante on that. And actually, with the exception of my one son who, so I had eight kids in the end, and six were labeled and adopted, and, and four were on the spectrum of autism. And with the ex exception of the one who was locked in the closet for a couple of years as part of his brain, missing, I mean, you can't mm -hmm. put him in the same basket. Mm -hmm. He still lives with me. But the other kids have all managed, you know, they've been got great careers, girlfriends, wives, children. Um, and I attribute a lot of that to that we never established this strong schedule that would fray them on the edges all mm -hmm. the time and instead constantly created variety. And as I 
came to understand the brain over the years, it's made so much sense, but it's really hard to sell that to people who've heard the other. And especially Mm -hmm. in a culture where we go to school Mm -hmm. and school needs sameness and school needs your child. Right. So the, Mm -hmm. the driver isn't really the child. It's the system we built. I ended up homeschooling for that reason. I drove around in an RV so that the kids would learn tangibly and everything would be all constantly changing and their brains would have to be firing. You see, when you, when you have everything the same and you're in the same environment, your brain doesn't have to fire and receive the information around you. Mm -hmm. It just knows it's there. So you actually lessen the amount of firing. Now that makes sense to do that when someone's overwhelmed, but to do it preemptively so that they aren't encouraged to grow their brains and to fire their neurons is over a lifetime, it's limiting in a big, big, big way. Yeah, I can imagine it being limiting. I know a lot of parents right now are struggling with with kids that aren't autistic trying to learn because they're in their their routine is is getting on the computer and just doing computer work and not going out and going out and do anything else in the classroom or getting away from the computer. So I totally can understand that. Now, when you adopted your kids, were you already in the brain field or no? No, (laughs) no, I backed into that just trying to help them. You know, this all started for me in the 80s and they didn't know very much. So early 80s. So I just had to go, Okay, you know, I don't want to do this stuff you're asking me to do and I'm trying to do, but it's mean and it's hurting them. And um, it was really, really restrictive back then. They used to slap the kids. They used mm-hmm. to, you know, tie them down. They used to, And schools never asked that of me, but certainly the therapists would, you know, encourage this kind of, they need a, a loud no. And, a, right? and I was like, okay, I, I hate myself, so mm-hmm. I can't do this. Um And, you know, there was a paucity of information, which was really a blessing because had there, it was a blessing and a curse, right? Had there been more knowledge like there is today, I'd have probably believed the experts knew everything and maybe given up my own thinking. But because there was such a paucity of information and the kids are kind of all lumped into special needs and cognitive impairments and things, um, I, I just kept looking and trying to understand. And the first thing I noticed is my kids were better in the summer holidays than they were when they were going to school. Mm. And so I had to analyze, you know, why is it that I can get them learning in the summer holidays and they regress all school year long? And I really had to, to examine what am I doing different that the schools are not doing? It's a much more playful world for mm-hmm. autistic people now than it was then. Um, But it's still much like this. And that would still be the case. If you were my child today and I had you all summer and then I sent you to school, you'd do better in the summer. Mm -hmm. And that's because I teach the part you want to learn, not the part I think you should learn. I teach the part that fits into your way of looking and then add in how to get by in the world and, and get the people around you to do what you want. I teach the part that helps you uh, regulate your sensory system, not gets you to hold it in until you get home. I, you know, and so when my kids were home in the summer holidays, they would just blossom. And that led to homeschooling because I was like, well, if they're blossoming when they're not at school, guess where they shouldn't be? 
Um, I remember your original question to tell you the truth. <laughs> I was asking you, were you already in the field before you adopted your oh, kids? Yeah, no. So then of course, because I, because I had discovered this and knew that I was going to be the, in the end, I, you know, I tried the schools a lot and all that, but in the end I knew it was going to be my job and I'd already been reading a lot and taking classes. I already had a computer degree. So I started thinking about, you know, the computer, the brain, there's enough similarity. And I, I sort of already had an understanding there. And, and I just started educating in behavior, more behavior than brain. And then as I moved into more brain because of neurofeedback, I had this understanding of computers and a binary code and the understanding of behavior and then the understand social behavior as well, like so societal behavior. And then um, the final uh, degree was for more brain development and psychophysiology. Um, so yeah, it evolved. And I literally did all that right to retirement. So it's not like you ever stop learning or you go out and you learn it and then you do it. Yeah, that's true. So what made you decide to adopt special needs kids? Because you already said that that wasn't really your background, but what made you decide to adopt? Because you're a single parent as well, right? Um, at the time that I started adopting, I was married, okay. um, but he couldn't handle the kids and that broke apart. And I continued adopting as a single mom. Um, I don't think they would have let me adopt initially if I hadn't been married, but once they knew there's a lot of people give their kids back, it's like 75% or something, yeah. uh, the adopted children are returned. So once they know you're a home that keeps the children, that's a good home. Now, now as, uh, this was Canada at the time. Now they're pretty happy to put a child in your home, right? Um, so just for information's sake, to answer your question, I didn't decide to adopt special needs kids. I had two daughters. I couldn't have any more children. My son had died at birth. Um, I decided to adopt two boys. I had two girls, I'll get two boys. But like many things, the process, right? You, you learn about who's available, who's not getting homes, the kind of lives that their lives they're destined for. Um, the one that still lives with me was just needing a bed for a couple of months. He was about to be institutionalized for life. I mean, your heart goes, oh, all those other normal kids are going to get a home. But, you know, mm -hmm. what about this person? <laughs> right? So it's the the unfolding of the knowledge, which is, you know, kind of a pro-education uh, mm -hmm. pitch, because the more you learn, the more that steers who you become and the choices you make. And um, it's important. It's important to really come to understand the system that you're dealing with and the people who have the true need. Um, and that's kind mm -hmm. of what happened. I just sort of evolved into it. Yeah, I know. I had just recently interviewed um, uh, an author who actually adopted two special needs kids. And the first one, he just kind of fell into. Yeah. And then the second one, it was like they'd had him. They just officially adopted him. And they get a call that the mom had given birth to the biological sister of the brother. And he was like, how can we not at right? least come in as a foster? So were you even fostering first or were you completely totally well, adopting? The boy that um, I have a similar story, the, the boy that 
uh, lives with me now that he's a man. Um, he had been locked up in a closet and they were putting him in an institution and they needed a home and I was waiting for kids and they called and said, please, no one will take him. And I'm like, that's not what I wanted, but okay. All right. I don't want to leave a poor kid out there. And then, um, of course I couldn't give him back and I had to fight for him and I didn't want him to go to an institution and it took forever because that wasn't. And so that was a foster situation. Well, I had already met the kids I wanted to adopt, but their dad had gotten out of prison and escaped with them. Oh, it's a big story. He ended up taking hostages, beating oh the goodness. whole family. It's like a huge story. So, and they had another baby. So when the one that was in my home became adoptable, I adopted him, like I fought the courts, everything. Then you can't adopt until 12 months goes by and mm -hmm. then you can get another... Well, on the day of his, the 12 months, I got a phone call that the other kids had been taken into custody that we'd been looking for all the time and did I want them. And now there's three, not two. So that's my four <laughs> multiply handicapped kids. And you're not going to say, no, I only want two. And yeah. you're not going to say, right, because I'd already chose, right. So yeah, you fall into it. And there's always story. This is a dramatic group of people with big needs and there's always story i could spend on just one of their stories we could spend days wow do you think that's made you a better person to deal um, with the behavior change and going into homes and teaching other parents how to react to their child's idiosyncrasies so to speak i think it's made me um uh, grow it's made me a better person for other parents because I, before having this many challenges and not sleeping for three years and not all the things that goes into it, before that, I probably would have thought my way is the right way. Mm -hmm. And when you end up with eight kids all from different origins and, and even your kids are having their issues and, you know, you go through the teenage years with kids and you, and you have, at some point you just go, Hey, I'm not all that, you know, I'm just doing my best and we're, we're doing our best and we're going to figure this out together. Now I have a very successful story with my guys, but I also have a story I could share that make you cry and cry and cry. Like, so you get to where you're, you really love parents mm. and I think this is so important and so missing in our therapists when I was doing this, the worst part was everybody else's opinion of me. Mm. It's horrible. And you're the one that's going to 24 hours a day for the rest of their lives if they need it, be there. So shame on everybody else if they're having an opinion that I'm not good at what I do or I'm not a good parent or I don't, you know, so it really made me a much more lovely person in that way. Um, more accepting when they don't want to do what I'm teaching because I know there were a lot of things, some of the stuff I do now with the kids or that I ended up doing with my kids, I rejected three, four times because it was too much for me. And then I embraced it. So you have to let yourself grow inside your experience to, to become a, not a divider of humans, mm -hmm. but a uniter of humans. And I, I truly, truly, truly love 
um, and love parents of autism that, and parents of uh, of every kind that really commit to this life of trying to help their children. So how did you do it? Because you said you're a you're single parent up to a certain point you were married, but after that you were a single parent that adopted mm -hmm. you know, all these kids. How did you, how did you cope? Cause I know that a lot of people are going to ask that question. How you, how did you cope? Well, you know, I mean, the answer changes year to year, right? Moment mm -hmm. to moment. But, um, and I was constantly figuring out bill paying year to year, moment to moment, uh, right? We went to food banks. We didn't go to food banks. Like there were, there was always, uh, sometimes I had, uh, I had a TV show at one point, so I had money, then I didn't have money. Then, so there's, there's too much to tell there, except that I was always solving it. Always, always, always like, oh, we need Christmas money. I know how to paint. Who paints houses? I'll paint houses. Oh, I know you and I'll paint. Right. So mm -hmm. you just never stop. And I was an entrepreneur, so I could design anything and put it together in any way that would pay a bill, um, whether it was singing in a bar, which I did. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, I did everything. I, I sold oranges at the subway station to get Easter egg money. Like uh, you just, you just do whatever you have to. So that's how I did that part. The, how did I cope? I'm not sure how I survived the three years of sleeplessness. I, I remember that being over with and having nightmares of being awake. Right. So mm -hmm. I'd be asleep. But in the dream, I wasn't allowed to sleep and I'd wake up from the oh, and I'm like, no. Wow. <laughs> right? So so that was hard. Um, but you know what? You just you just keep solving and you just keep doing. And I preferred to do it myself. So what I can say is usually the help hurts. And that's not what people want to hear because they want to get all these staff members in, and especially right now in, in this pandemic period, everyone's like, but I have no help and they have no program. And actually, that's your opportunity. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think I would have helped the kids as much if I was married. That's the honest truth. Um, it would have meant that I had to then cooperate with my husband's viewpoint. I'm already dealing with the neighbors. I'm already dealing with the teachers. I'm already dealing, and I have to get you to agree with me that would have watered it down. Um, I would have had to carve out time for my husband where we were together as a couple mm -hmm. and I didn't have that time. I had to give all that time to the kids. Um, sure, he might have gone to work, which would have lessened the other struggle. But that other struggle, often I brought my kids into so they would learn how to work, learn tangible mm -hmm. skills. We mowed lawns together. We like I, I used all of that. And I'm sure that would have been impossible in a marriage. Um, and also, I remember one time sitting in my room and they had brought a lot of help for me. And I'm in my room reading a book while people are working with my kids and cleaning my house. And I'm like, okay, this is not why I adopted children. I do mm -hmm. not want to be sitting in a clean bedroom, hiding out from the people working with my kids. That was the last time that ever happened. I just went out and said, sorry, this isn't for me. I'm doing it myself. <laughs> that meant consistency though. Mm -hmm. It also meant overwhelm and exhaustion, but uh, that won't work for someone who isn't like me in that, I enjoy that. I enjoy um, helping my kids. I enjoy even being 
you know, being the one getting them to be disciplined. I enjoy being creative. I enjoy keeping in. That's me. If you're not like that, this would have been too much for sure. I didn't need time for me because that was time for me, I guess is the point. So basically you were feeding into your kids and that's what fed your soul is feeding right. into your kids. Right. Right. And, and it's real. It's really who I am. I did that as a young person. I babysat all over town and like, I just, it's who I am. So one has to know themselves and design their life accordingly. And one life's not better than another. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not structured. I'm never going to be structured. If you ask me to be structured, <laughs> I'm just going to be creative about being unstructured in a structured way. So you don't notice. <laughs> 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 I know a lot of times people say, well, you have to have a set work schedule. I don't work like that. I can't like have a yeah. set work schedule. So you probably don't have a set work schedule either. Do no, you? no. I mean, the truth is uh, even these appointments, they're like the most stressful thing in my life because I have to keep an eye on the clock. So imagine school, right? You uh -huh. have to get your kids to school on time. If they're not on time, it looks bad on you. But meanwhile, it's better for them if you let them fail or if you let them sleep in a little that day or if you right you're just not making choices in the right way so yeah no a uh, schedule is not my not my thing it's not my thing so let's talk about your one woman show crazy to sane let's talk about that well when i came to california uh, so I was in Canada and Texas and Massachusetts and um, all these evolutions of self were happening. And, you know, I was getting degrees and certifications and learning about helping the kids and doing all this. When I came to California, I was pretty done as far as most of my kids were independent, capable, and, and I would be more doing that parenting when you're like a coach, helping them survive, getting fired, getting rehired, all that. Um, and I was now working in a brain rehab clinic and, and I was going more fully into that sort of work. And I thought, wow, I need to take the me that I was as a mom who was an actress and a singer and a stand-up comedian and did all those things, put out CDs and, you know, anything that I could. We sold them at gas stations while we did a prison tour. Like, I mean, I was creative, right? <laughs> But um, I wanted to take that side of me and bring it together in California. I figured if there's any place where you can be all of that, where you can be both the doctor and the performer, it's California. So do it, come out of the gate doing that and have people get to know you in that way. So you don't get pigeonholed into having to be all like perfect. And, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, like my shirt right now, it's my granddaughter's uh, step shirt and it's got a thing on it. And I thought, but the color's nice. I'll just turn it inside out. Like, I, <laughs> right? like I want to be her, that uh -huh. girl, that girl. I, I like me. And so um, I decided to write a show that brought all that together that would make you cry, make you laugh. You know, I wrote songs, I wrote jokes, I told stories. And the theme was, you know, this is the kind of crazy I used to be and all the crazy kids that I, I mean, it's the the name of it, right? All the crazy mm -hmm. kids stories that I adopted and, and I went into their crazy with them. I, I connected with them in that place and we walked out together. I was just barely ahead of them. And 
And that's basically what the show is about. And it went, you know, it was great. I, I traveled it all over uh, North America and a little bit in Canada. And then I, I wrote it in, because I did stand-up comedy, I learned how to write in bits or chunks. Mm -hmm. And I did that for my prison tour show too. So it can be any length. It can be three hours and be a complete show and really huge. It can be 15 minutes and be a complete show. So you just have to know. No, it's it's like the difference between the Coles Notes version and the mm -hmm. or the quotes from the book, the Coles Notes version or the full mm -hmm. novel. Uh -huh. But but it can I couldn't write in those modules, which um, was great training ground for this because you know some places were big theaters and I did full mm -hmm. show. Sometimes I just had my piano player in a small black box somewhere. Um, so I just, I, I shortened the show or um, sometimes I was doing a little piece on a TV interview and I could do like five minutes. So mm -hmm. that was good. Wow. Uh, oh, here. Let's see. Let's see. Let's see. And I have a CD. If you guys go online and buy it, that's really good because the pandemic's really hard on one's economics. <laughs> I will make sure to throw the link up there to go in and buy it. Is it available on your website? Yeah, it's on my website and it's on Amazon and that. And I also have okay. this book. It's I wrote this ages ago, but I just want to tell you that I really still think that every parent of an autistic child should read my book because it gives you the history, sort of a broad understanding of the world you're entering into. And a mom, I hold your hand as a mom. I wrote it before I had a, a doctorate. So it's more... It's more mom to mom while at the mm -hmm. same time having the case studies and whatnot in it. Um, so you talked about you've lived all over the place. You saw Canada, Massachusetts. Now you're in California. What made you decide to move around all these places and how did your kids adapt to moving? Of course, they probably didn't know anything different because you were constantly moving. But how did you adapt that into that? Well, I believe in variety. For their for the kids, um, so we moved a lot. Anyways, uh, uh, we moved anytime a teacher got mean. We moved anytime you know the system made it so that my child would be uh, struggling more instead of less. I learned early in that you can fight the political fight, but your child will lose. Other ch other people's children will benefit years later, but your child will lose. So I never fought those fights. I just moved. Mm -hmm. I remember one time, uh, one of the, the administrators just taking me aside and saying, I never said this, but we can't fire her and you should move. And I just, mm -hmm. I just moved. Like, and so was, uh, was that hard on my kids? Well, it was hard in the way of they didn't have the normal roots. Mm -hmm. It was probably more hard on my neurotypical kids that were my biological children. Um, but it was also good for my kids because mm -hmm. we embraced it. We, we made lives that said, we will not take abuse. We will not, we will live in a way that is beautiful and fun and we will learn together. Um, but even from within, like I had one son that was very angry and I'm like, I won't take abuse from you either. Here's mm -hmm. a tent. You can sleep in the yard. <laughs> right? so, so like, it was, um, we adapted because we were searching for good situations and they knew that. I wanted to live in America more than Canada because at the time Canada was more 
um, well, they just didn't homeschool, at least mm -hmm. not where I was. Uh, and I knew Ontario better than anywhere else. And so I wanted a uh, bigger freedom than that. Mm -hmm. And this is maybe going to rub some people the wrong way, but I wanted to live in a place that had bigger problems because they wouldn't be staring at us all the time. Where I was living, we were kind of the problem, you mm -hmm. know, the crazy family with all the crazy kids, making, bringing the property values down. But when I moved into America, it was easier to just, as long as we took care of ourselves and weren't asking too much of others, they went, well, we have bigger fish to fry. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we have bigger problems in the world. And there was just a bigger acceptance of, you go, girl, you, you figure that out. Let us know how that works. Mm -hmm. um, and I needed that. Now, not everyone would. That's not the right answer for everyone. But for me, I needed that. I needed the ability to make the decisions for my kids so that we could actually make this work. And that got me to Texas. And then um, it was trainings that, that changed where I lived after that. I then trained in Massachusetts and then I got a job at a brain rehab clinic in California. So it was then, you know, sort of uh, the unfolding of life and work. And Do you think your kids' lives are richer because you were able to transition and move them from place to place because they got to experience not only moving and living in different places, but different cultures, different ways of doing things. So they're able more able to adapt now because they're not set into one way that they had growing up? Well, I think they're smarter. Um, they're definitely more flexible than they would be. They're off, most of them have graduated off the spectrum. They wouldn't have otherwise. Um, the one, the ones that needed tangible learning gained from having to read the map or I wouldn't drive mm -hmm. to the right place and we'd be lost and um, things like that. Uh, life made sense to them because they helped me make it happen. So we worked as a team. I think they're, they're capable and, uh, you know, one's a helicopter mechanic married with a kid. Do they like their memories? No, I don't know. I mean, they themselves probably go, geez, mom, seriously? <laughs> right. But, you know, they're not, they're not the ones that they lived it, not knowing their own challenge, if I can, mm -hmm. if you can understand. So I had to see what the problem was and address that, whether they liked it or not. And then try to make it like a bowl. Um, but I don't think my children would be where they're at without that constant variety, making it so that they had to learn and adjust. Even my lowest functioning independent child, he had Tourette's, fetal alcohol syndrome, classic autism, and retardation. And he lives on his own as for like, now he does great, but um, usually he doesn't do well with a job for longer than six months because he just mm -hmm. gets exhausted by the hours. And uh, he's been, you know, a lot of work, even though he's out in the world and he mm -hmm. wouldn't really fit the criteria of, he's still weird, <laughs> right? So, yeah. um, but even he, if you were to look at him, you'd say, oh, no, he, he likes structure. He's trying to do things the same all the time and all that. But that's coming from him. That's mm -hmm. not the sick person personality being reinforced and keeping him from growing as a child. He's then chosen a life that has a more calm, steady rhythm mm -hmm. in it. And, you know, that works for him. 
but he wouldn't be where he's at had I not helped him get there. Yeah, that's true. Does that make you feel good as a parent to know that you've done your best? And even though, like you said, his lifestyle is a little bit different than the way he had growing up to know that he knows that that's the lifestyle he needs instead of saying, oh, I'm just going to go with the flow and, and change and do exactly how my mom did instead. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, no, thing. no. It makes me, he's, you know, in many ways, he's, um, he's still not the brightest tool in the shed, but he has some of the most wonderful statements that'll come out very uh, inspiring. Mm -hmm. And it's from this kind of constant learning. Um, yeah, it makes me, it makes it okay to die. It makes it okay to be old. It makes mm -hmm. it okay. Like I hit my 60s and I went, oh, I did it. Oh, thank God I did it. Okay, whatever happens now, I can do whatever I want. I can <laughs> do what I want. I'm going to be what I want. And the funny part is I already was, right? Oh, I was already yeah. doing it. Because as soon as I took that permission and thought, okay, I'll rest, I got bored and, and started, you know, doing stuff with the great, great grandkids. So whatever. <laughs> great grandkids. Great. Not, not two greats. One great. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> but that has to... That has to give you some sense of peace and calm knowing that they can function in the world no, when huge. you're gone. Huge. Yeah, huge. Although I never did that thing. that I, It used to drive me nuts when people would do that where they'd say, well, what are you going to do when they're older? I said, they're eight, nine, and 12. Why are you asking me that? Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, what a stupid question. Mm -hmm. <laughs> let, me, let me do the present with an eye towards giving them skills and abilities. And we'll see when we get there. It's, it's crazy to worry about that. I mean, you, there's look at what we're in right now. Mm -hmm. You know, did you know that was coming? Nope. <laughs> you know, when, they, when they asked me, should I say, well, during the pandemic of 2000, we're, 2020, <laughs> we're going to like, it's a stupid question. You shouldn't worry about the future with your kids. It'll, yeah. it'll cause you to wrap yourself around this problem, get so focused on it that you actually create it. It'll become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, the boy that I was talking about or the man that I was talking about lives on his own, has for a long time. He's a labor hand. Uh, whenever he has problems with work, he runs his own little landscaping business, really. He mows lawns. Um, he's which I taught them to do because we mowed lawns together. Like, you know what I mean? Um, but he does fine. He's, he, everyone likes him in town and all of that. Uh, if I would have worried about his future, he'd be in a group home. Mm -hmm. And he didn't want that. That was an option I gave him. Um, you can't do it that way. He, I would have been like, but you are not going to be able to, and you're not going to be, because he didn't seem able to, he can't pass the GED. Mm. He can barely do his banking, but, but unlike many kids, mm -hmm. he can do his bank, mm -hmm. even though he can't do, um, you know, algebra. Yep. So he can do the stuff he needs to know how to do. So he has the life skills. You've instilled in him the life skills too. Right. So because we prioritize living and becoming independent. Right. So let's talk about your prison tour. You mentioned that several times. Let's talk about the prison tour. What exactly was that? Um, it was a time in my life where I was doing stand-up comedy. I was uh, 
looking at how do my kids were kind of falling apart. I had a lot of teenagers. They were having parties when I went to work, things like that. And um, I'm like, how can I pull all this together? <laughs> it was also a time when um, I don't know how old you are, but anyways, there was a time when they were kind of romanticizing prison in the in on TV, and then you know it made it looked cool to you could go to prison and rest and write a book or something. What a fallacy that is! So the kids had were getting kind of caught up. The teenagers, the girls were getting kind of caught up in the wrong thinking and I needed to gather us all together and put us in a place where I could make money I could do a show and definitely have an audience I didn't have the time to produce and get an audience um, because there, there were so many things going on at home and I thought what about prison tour. <laughs> so I just called up all the prisons and said, hey, um, I'm going to come with and give you a show for free and we'll pass the hat. So uh, it was hard to get it started, but I wrote a show. I put my kids in it. Um, many of the places I went, the young people couldn't be part of, but the, anyone 18 and up could. So I always had at least two um, children that could be a part of the show. And then if we were in like a halfway house or something, then everyone could do it. And uh, we traveled all of North America. We did this show. We ran out of money several times. The van broke down. We got robbed twice. Mm -hmm. um, and they learned and I learned and we solved all these problems and we sold CDs and we, you know, and we kept solving problems. And uh, the prisoners were fantastic. They helped us all the time. Um, you know, we had mostly good experiences. Uh, and by the time we were finished that tour, we were exhausted. In fact, I canceled the last one, which still makes me feel bad because they were looking forward to seeing us. Mm. But I, I, I don't think that was a replaceable situation. They learned so much. I remember going into a maximum security prison in um, oh, Maryland, Baltimore, Maryland. And, you know, we had to have, be frisked and have all our stuff looked at and all that stuff. And we were inside and we were looking at the stage and looking at the space. And um, my daughter just said to me, Mom, thank you for this. Thank you for this. I'm a different person already. And she was an adopted child who has a really big history. So it was a very important learning. Um, it wasn't romantic. <laughs> right? Yeah. And it, it was not a place you want to be and yet we could give pleasure and joy and and we had a show about you know making something bad into something good of course there's a moral to the story and of course um, yeah but but i think the real the real deal was for us not so much for them as much as i loved performing for the prisoners um it was really more for us and the experience that we had Oh, and yeah. that that led to me knowing that being on the road with the kids is very um, advantageous for their learning. And later, years later, I lived in an RV with them uh, for a year and a half so that they could um, learn some more. And and they caught up actually in grade level at that point. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. Yeah. And if I had a husband, he would have said no. Yeah. Because it's 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 one thing when you're making the decision, but it's another thing, like you said, when you have to 
talk to somebody else about the decision before you can even make the decision. Right. With you, it right. was just like, no, we're doing this regardless. Right. 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 It solves all my problems. I can make some money. I can keep you guys busy. I know where you're at. You can't go and do drugs with some friend. Come on, we're going to do a prisoner. <laughs> it was crazy. So how much input did your kids have in do and moving around? Um, well, as far as their input, they had input in everything. Like if I was taking on another child, two of my children are actually, I got legal custody. They were runaways. I just call it all adopted because it's less messy sounding. Um, so every time we took on a child, uh, I asked everybody and everyone had to agree and it had to be a group decision. Um, we had group meetings every Sunday, um, even housework, babysitting, all that was a chore chart driven thing. So in that way it was structured. Uh, I wasn't initially, but I soon learned that if I didn't do some something like that, that mm -hmm. we would we would just fall apart and I wouldn't be able to work. So um, we weren't always having our family meetings, but whenever there was uh, anything up, I would go family meeting right? and everybody'd come in. So they were a part of everything, but let's be honest, I know how to sell, mm -hmm. right? So if I want them to want to do the prison tour, I could get most of them to agree. One of the girls didn't, uh, participate much in it. She was only along for, uh, but uh, I guess we traveled three months doing that, three or four months, and I think she was along for only three weeks of it, just to do a couple of shows and go home. She was older, so she got away with it. Yeah. Wow, you sure have opened my eyes up to a lot of things. Now, what would you tell a parent who is right now is struggling, either with um, more recently having a child more recently diagnosed with um, autism. Okay. Well, anybody listening, whether they're recently diagnosed or not, the first thing I want to say is take my story and laugh and enjoy the thought of it. And don't think you have to do it because you're not going to do that. Um, it's a unique story and it belongs to me. And you're not going to all of a sudden go live in an RV or, or maybe you will do that part, but you probably mm -hmm. won't do the prison tour. Or you won't do, you know what I mean? But take that and listen to the why of it, the, um, the tangible learning that happens when you travel together, the let's, let's enjoy who you are and figure out what you need to know, what you can learn and how you learn it. Take those bits. An example being my one son, he was fixated on the number 1985 because it's the year of his birth. And every, he carved it into everything. He freaked out if the five in his scale landed. If, if a scale went zero to 10, it was okay. But if it went or zero to nine, it was okay. But if it went one to 10, he would have a meltdown. So mm -hmm. he, it was crazy making, right? Um, but I took that and I used that to teach math. Like, and to teach grouping and to teach, uh, well, so every kind of grouping in the world, every kind of people, every kind of uh, number scale and, you know, all and intangibles to teach mm -hmm. him that people make up stuff. They make up the scale for you. Mm -hmm. So he learned so much from this fixation. If you can, instead of hating their STEM or hating mm -hmm their weirdness, their different ability. If you can go, where's my opportunity here? There are basic skills your child needs and only the basic ones matter. The rest is just window dressing. 
So if you just your child just got diagnosed, they're probably still really cute and really adorable. And before they told you he was autistic, you just thought he was really adorable. And he still is. Don't do the sick person personality thing. Just go, okay, so now we have a name for it. Let's take advantage of the good stuff out there and let's not do anything that doesn't feel right. And this is important. Keep an open mind because it might be right later. Just mm -hmm. like I refused some of the therapies that I had later embraced and learned how to do because it was too much for me at the time. Mm -hmm. You're part of the story. You matter. And if you can't do it at the time, then you don't do it. Okay? It's not the end of the world. Your child lives a long time. If This, this whole pressure we put on time is ridiculous. Like, the pandemic. Oh, the kids aren't going to go to school for a year. Lucky them. Mm -hmm. They're all not going to school for a year the normal way. So they're mm -hmm. in a group of, you know, it's so what? So so you're, you reach your 30-year abilities at 31. Oh, no. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> Oof, sorry, I keep kicking the computer. Um, yeah, so chill. Yeah, just embrace them and listen to what I said and grab what works for you and think of how to generalize. You're going to hear this word a lot. Uh, your child doesn't generalize their skills. Well, if you don't, they won't. So you have to do it first. Well, I want to thank you for coming on. Is there any last thought that you want to impart on us? Um. You know, I have a lot of little tidbits that I use a lot, little rules that I make. Uh, and the one that I'm most known for is called Lynette's Law. And I think it's a really good one to share, if, especially for parents with uh, children that, on the spectrum of autism, but also all parents, every parent and every spouse and every employee, four compliments to one correction. Mm -hmm. So you want to live a life and you want to teach in a way that shores up, shores up, shores up, corrects. Because with no correction, there's nothing, nothing changes. There no, there's no purpose. There's no learning really. But without enough compliment or yeah, yeah is a compliment. It doesn't have to be you're beautiful, right? Mm -hmm. But yes, I did it is a compliment. It's a mm -hmm. good feeling, a celebration. You mm -hmm. can call it a celebration. Um, without the right amount of that, which would be about four to one, you end up in a life that's too negative, too depressing. Uh, you know, it takes the motivation away. And most children with autism are not given enough to shore them up, to help them through the, the correction you're going to make in how they're behaving. So four to one. Wow. Okay. Where can people find you at? Everywhere. Um, Lynette Louise, the brain broad. Um, I'm the only brain broad. Um, uh, Facebook. I'm not on TikTok, but I've got Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. I don't I don't really do Twitter properly, I don't think, but I'll answer you. Um, uh, I've got a website. I've got two websites, brainbody.net, lynettelouise.com. Just Google me. You'll find me. YouTube. I got YouTube channels. What's your YouTube channel? Uh, I have two. Um, probably Lynette Louise will do it. Okay. 
I'm not really sure. That's a good question. I'll check. <laughs> but there's there, there's links to it on my website. So if you go to LynetteLouise.com, you have all that stuff. Like I have a show that where cameras go with me to work. One's in Africa. One's in United States. I'm still editing Israel like for years now. Um, so you can watch me work. Uh, from beginning to end, five days in a home in a different culture, or you can watch little snippet, snippets of me work um, in different homes uh, from YouTube clips. And, you know, there's books, there's, you know, all that stuff. La, la, la. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to thank you for taking the time out of your busy day with all everything you have going on to come on and talk about this, because I think it's an important issue that a lot of people need to know and I learn know. about. And I want to thank you for sharing your audience with me. It's uh, it's generous and I appreciate it. Okay, guys, we will see you on the next chat from the blog cabin. Y'all, I can't even make up the stuff that she told me in this interview. I mean, seriously, who would have thought taking your kids on a prison tour to do your one woman show or to do a show about this? I am just like floored i just absolutely love that she's such she knew what was best for her kids instead of taking what most people say the education system because i was a teacher so i kind of understand how she was going with it that not all kids fit the bill not all kids fit into a box and they all have different types of learning so i absolutely applaud her for that and i applaud with the fact that she actually went out and learned more about what was going on in, in their brains so she can tell how her kids learned. And she let them adapt to the way she was instead of her adapting her life to how her kids were because they learned how to um, be in the real world and learn how to adapt to real world changes. I also mentioned in this, I, don't, I think I mentioned in this or I mentioned in the previous podcast with Steve Gans that... One of my favorite authors is Deanna J. Smith, and I'm hoping and praying. I'm putting it out in the universe. I have sent fillers out to her about being on the podcast, especially in the month of February, where I'm going to be focusing mainly on women's issues um, and women. But she writes a book about, in every book, one of, one of her characters has Down syndrome. And her daughter, her oldest daughter, has Down syndrome. Is the oldest of five kids. And... I learned a lot from following hers throughout the years. I learned not to use the R word when referring to anybody that has any type of brain disability or abnormalities. Um, I learned a lot and I, I'm just so impressed with her. She actually spoke in front of the UN for the Down Syndrome Day, which was amazing when she was like very heavily pregnant with her fifth child. So I'm hoping and praying that she comes on, but I see a, a lot of Dr. Lynette in her because Deanna would actually say, well, her daughter couldn't did the same things as her brothers did, regardless, or her sisters. She just did it in a slower time, but she still learned to do a lot of things on her own. So I applaud parents who do that. And parents that, you know, if you're not, it's okay if you're struggling. That's what I'm trying to tell you. It's okay if you're struggling. Reach out to someone. Not everybody's way works best. It's what works best for you and your child. You know your child the best. You're the parent. So I hope you really enjoy this another edition on the, the parenting episode. I have a couple more coming up, um, which is really, really great. 
And then after that, I have a couple of father, daughter, mother, son writing teams that I'm going to add to the very end of the podcast. And then we'll go straight into hopefully business. I'll do a week of business, week or two of business, and then straight into women's issues and and interviewing women. And then in the month of February, be prepared. I'm going to try and hit it. My goal is to hit every day a podcast release. So let's see if I do it. So once again, I want to thank you guys for being part of the podcast family. Sorry, this was very long-winded of this exit was very long-winded, but I really thank you for listening. I would love if you'd leave a rating or review because it helps my podcast get in front of other people and also more people want to be on. And I've had some really interesting people come on. I've recorded with someone who's talking about public speaking. I've had another one who created several companies that's coming up I have one about how you can get passive income I even have a psychic on guys I mean I no topic is off limits I'm just enjoying meeting in these new people so you know what I need you to do right now that's right I need you to start chatting with each other <laughs>